0: It's it's really good to be back here with you folks again. We always enjoy coming up here, to be here and and visit. And uh, I just am sad that Jim and Deidre aren't here, but I'm glad that they're there so that they can enjoy walking in the steps of of Jesus. That, that's that's quite a privilege, isn't it? It's it's uh, it's just good that that uh, God is is so good, isn't he? Well, let's 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 uh, pause for just a second and and ask the Lord to to bless our, our time this morning together. <clears throat> Lord, we just thank you this morning for another day that we can worship you and, and we can open your word and, and just see what you have to say to us today. We we just thank you so much for this body of believers that's gathered together that that are hungry for your word, Lord. And we just thank you too. Just pray that you'll guide my lips this morning, that I won't bring glory to myself, but only to you In as we look. It's your word. Thank you so much in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I brought my Manhui Bible, as, as you saw earlier. Um, however, if I talked in Monhui, you'd probably have a hard time understanding me. So I'll stick to English as much as possible. If I slip in when there's a word or two that I say in the wrong language, you can have to ask me later what I meant. But I, I'm going to try here this morning. I actually spent over a year, over almost two years now since we were with the Monhui working but we went back uh, uh, this last, um, what month was that? I'm trying to think. It was uh, it was in April. We were back with the Manuhui for a few weeks. And then we're going to go back again this time in July, June or July. We're not sure of the date. Just to visit. We just can't get it out of our blood. And I guess it's because that was our home for so many years. Um, I'm not going to tell you a whole lot about the Manahui this morning. We're going to look at God's word. I was just thinking, when I, when I study in my quiet times and, and other times when I have a chance to look at God's Word, I, I'm always looking for truths that I can apply to my own personal life. And, and there's something I came across. Well, actually, I came across it first when I was translating the book of Matthew, but it's, it keeps coming back to my mind, and, and probably because there's things that I need to learn again in it, or learn over again. Well, there was something that ca- I came across here that really got me thinking about my own personal faith, my trust in the Lord. And, and like I said, Dave read uh, earlier t- here in uh, Matthew chapter 8. So I want to go back to Matthew chapter 8 again, but but I'm not going to read those verses that he read. We're going to look at Matthew eight eighteen through 27. 18 through 27. Matthew 8, 18 through 27. So follow along if you have your Bible and, and uh, I'll read it here. It says, uh, starting with verse 18 of Matthew 8. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. But they didn't quite get in the boat yet, okay? Here's what happened. Then a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. So now he's in the boat. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And the men were amazed, and they said, What kind of man is this that even the waves, the winds, and the sea obey him? You know, there's, there's a lot of things in this passage. And I wish we had about three hours to go through each step by step. But, but uh, one, of them, one of them, in fact, is this paradox of Jesus' humanity. They're asleep in a boat. And then the paradox is the comparison is em- his omniscience and his power over, the, over the, the, the winds and the sea. Those are things that I'd, I'd like to take a whole hour talking about because they are so, it's interesting, the paradoxes in the Scripture. And I think, I'm pretty sure Jim is, has talked about many of those things before from this very pulpit. But what really caught my attention this particular time when I was going through it was the comment in verse 26 where Jesus, regarding the disciples, where Jesus asked them, he says, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? And that, that question, and that statement, got me thinking about my own faith in the Lord and how I trust him in adverse situations. And as I thought about this, so I jotted down some questions uh, when I started thinking about this that I, I want to uh, take time to answer just a little bit as we go through this. So here are some of those questions. First, why did Jesus say to his disciples that they were men of of little faith. What did he mean by that comment? And second, is it possible for me, for us as well, that we might be called at times men or people of little faith? And if so, what might cause our faith to shrink and become small? And if our faith is small, is there something we can do about it? Or is it a permanent situation, condition? And finally, is it possible that we might become persons of great faith instead of little faith? So those were the questions that I started rolling around in my head. And then I started looking at some other scriptures, because there are other scriptures that mention very similar things. So let's look at another passage where Jesus said of someone that they had little faith in order to see what he meant. Turn with me now to Matthew 14. Matthew 14. We're going to look at verses 22 through 32. And I'm going to read the whole passage. We need the context. The context is always important, okay? So let's look. The context of this passage, and I won't read it, but I'll just tell you. Jesus had just finished performing the awesome miracle of feeding 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fishes. Incredible. 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 So there should be no problem with anybody believing Jesus, right? All right. Verse 22. Immediately, he or Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And after he sent the crowds away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Now, I, I kind of think of myself, the disciples kind of thinking, well, how's he going to catch up? Is he going to get in another boat? Is he going to go around the Sea of Galilee? I'm sure those thoughts crossed their minds. But anyway, he stayed up there on the mountain to pray, it says. And when it was evening, he was there by himself. Now, verse 24, but the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. So again, we have a situation similar to what we saw in Matthew 8, with high waves and contrary winds verse 25 and the in the fourth watch of the night which was about between somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. that's what the fourth watch means he came to them walking on top of the water walking on the sea it says verse 26 when the disciples saw him walking on the sea they were terrified and said it's a ghost it's a spirit and they cried out in fear then peter good old peter i love him <laughs> he pipes up and he says lord if it, if it's you if it's really really you, and not just the spirit, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, what? He said, come. And so Peter climbs out of the boat, says he got out of the boat, and he walked on the water, and he came toward Jesus. Verse 30, but seeing the wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him, and what did he say? He said, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. So again, we have this storm at sea and Jesus' omniscience is seen here by his walking on the water. we also see a bit of Peter's nature, don't we? By his willingness to try anything that his master told him to do. Ah, That's amazing to me. He was going to try anything. He actually climbed out of the boat, stepped down on top of the water and began to walk and go to Jesus. And he really did stay up for a few seconds, didn't he? Then that, I mean that—that's incredible. That's amazing, and I certainly would have been that brave. I don't think I wouldn't have tried that because it defies every everything about nature, and it defies gravity. So it must have taken some faith for Peter to do that, to obey. But then, what happened? We see that he looked down, didn't he? And he felt the probably felt the wind, the water swirling below his feet, and and he felt the wind blowing on his back and his sides. And what happened? He became afraid, didn't he? He began to sink in the water and he called out for help. And Jesus used the same term as before, didn't he? You of little faith. Why did you doubt? So what does that term mean? You of little faith. Actually, the, the, the uh, term little faith is, is just one word in the Greek. It's, uh, it, it, it sounds like this. I'm not sure I can pronounce it. I could say it probably better in Manhui. But it says oligopistos. So it's really a compound word. It's, it's two words that are put together. The first is oligos which means short, small, puny. Okay. The second word is pistis or pistos, which means of a a certain persuasion or or a belief or a conviction, a belief about something or someone. And so put together, it does mean small in believing. So rendered in the English is is right on. It's one of little faith. It's accurate and quite descriptive. Peter and the other disciples were said to have little faith in trusting Jesus and And actually, when I got to thinking about it, it really is synonymous with doubt, isn't it? It really just means they doubted Jesus. And how do we know that? If we look again there at verse 31, Jesus added the question, why did you doubt? So I think we can conclude that they are the same. When Peter or one of the others said they were to have had little faith, they were doubting Jesus. And, you know, I think we can do this at times, too. We can be said uh, to doubt. We begin when God puts us in a situation, a specific situation for us to believe him, but we fail to believe, and then our faith becomes small too, and we doubt. And then and there's something else to think about. I just realized that there's no clock on the wall, so no wonder Jim sometimes preaches 40 minutes. Now if I go over, I'll try to squeeze it down, but we'll see, <laughs> I don't see a clock. <laughs> I don't have a clue what time it is, so raise your hand if it's starting to get past the time, okay? <laughs> Okay, here's something else to think about. When we, I think we can draw from both of these situations that we read both in in chapter 8 and in chapter 14, that this failure to believe God in this situation was caused by what? It was caused by fear. These men were fearful of what could happen, not what did necessarily, but what could happen. In both cases, a storm came up on the sea, and, and these guys were experienced, Uh, uh, sailors they were fishermen they'd gone out every day of their lives they'd been in boats but they still became afraid when they saw the crashing waves and felt the wind rocking their boat in this particular situation and then in Peter's case he became fearful and doubted Jesus after feeling the wind blowing on him like I said before and in both cases all they could see was the storm and the wind or the the turbulent waters So they had lost their focus on the one who had created the situation probably for their benefit, I believe. And thus they became afraid. They lost their focus and they became fearful. And their fear led to doubt. You know, I can kind of sympathize just a little bit with Peter and understand because he'd never been there before, had he? How many of us have ever walked on water? I mean, that's an incredible thing. But I believe I mean, I think I would have been fearful as well. But I believe that these guys had a choice, and they could have chosen to think about Jesus and his power, his omniscience, and believe him instead of allowing fear to control their emotions. And so I ask Has any of you ever been in a situation where instead of believing, you slipped into fear? You got doubtful and fearful. God has shown me, and I want to give you a, a story, okay, where I found my faith got really small, okay? So I'm gonna illustrate this. I was on my way one time. We were working in the book of Hebrews, and I, we, at that time we were living away from the village. We lived 90 miles away, or excuse me, 120 miles away. So we had to make the trip out there and then stay for a few days, work on the translation, and then go home again. So uh, I was on my way out there this particular time to work on the book of Hebrews, and I was driving my truck, which was a two-wheel drive truck, and I was following my son, Jeff, who had a four-wheel drive truck. So we had two vehicles. We shouldn't have any problems, right? He was going back home. His family, they still lived out there at the time, and uh, he'd been in town just buying a, a month's supply of groceries, and so we were, the two of us were going out. Nancy wasn't with me, because she'd had to stay home that time. So it was just Jeff and I in the two different trucks. Well, we went on. There's, the road consists of 40 miles of asphalt and 90 miles of dirt, okay? So we got to the end of the asphalt. So we still had 90 miles to go, and the, these 90 miles of dirt are usually not too bad in the dry season. But we had just had some big rains in the last few weeks. So we we went about one mile down the dirt road, and we came to this area of about 200 feet where you could see the tracks had kind of melted into the mud, and it was it was really mucky looking, really bad, and we were pretty sure it was impossible to go through it, but Jeff decided to try it just a little bit. So he pulls his four-wheel drive truck in, and he sunk immediately down. He had, to, he had to put it in four-wheel drive and then back back out. So I knew there was no way we could get in, especially not with my two-wheel drive. Now, you guys are from Idaho, right? And I have noticed that there's a lot of 4x4s that sit up really high in Idaho, North Idaho. And so you'd probably think, oh, come on. This would really be fun to go through some really fun gumbo, wouldn't it, in a 4x4. But guess what? (laughs) Not me. Maybe when I was a lot younger and I had a 4x4, I might have thought about trying it. But you see, what happened at that particular time is my fear level started going up. I felt anxious and fearful as I pictured what? Not that hole, but the rest of the 90 miles of gumbo and muck as well. My imagination, my fear, my mind was turning to fear, wasn't it? Instead of believing that God was leading me out there. So why shouldn't I trust him? I didn't see it though. I didn't realize. All I could picture in my mind was standing knee deep in muck. Trying to dig myself out with a broken shovel. I mean, that was, those are the pictures that came to my mind. Well, we did know that there was a bypass road around that spot a few miles back. So we turned around and we went back around. And we, we did bounce through quite a few holes uh, for about uh, five miles. And we came back finally to the, the original road again. And then Jeff stopped. He didn't go on. He stopped right in front of me. And he climbed out and he walked back to the truck and said, Hey, Dad, he says, you got your 12-volt tire pump handy? Is it is it out in the open where we can get to it? He says, I... I just put a slight slit in the sidewall of my tire and it's leaking pretty bad and I need to put a plug in it and pump it up. So there we were, 10 miles down the road. And the four-wheel drive truck that I was counting on to pull me through was already breaking down. So what happens? My fear level went up, okay? And I was whining to the Lord, Lord, what are you trying to do to me? But where was my focus? It was on me and on fear, wasn't it? I should have realized that I was choosing to be fearful instead of being thankful and believing, but I missed it. Well, we plugged Jeff's tire, and we went on down the road, and thankfully, it got better and better. There was no more bad holes. We did get through some spots, but it, we got there. And uh, so I quit thinking about this whole thing about the fear, and and uh, and that was the end of it, I thought. Look, God wasn't done with me. We worked the next day on the book of Hebrews. I hit the sack. Uh, pretty tired that night, but I woke up in the middle of the night to the sound of hard rain pounding on the tin roof, and I felt this fear squeezing me, and I said, how am I going to get back home in my two-wheel drive? Jeff wasn't going back. It had to be me by myself now, and I couldn't go back to sleep. I tossed and turned, imagining what the roads were like, and I even found myself praying to the Lord and saying, Lord, when I'm afraid, I'll trust in you. (laughs) but I couldn't go back to sleep for a while and it didn't help me. You see, the problem was what? I was focusing on myself and on my situation. I got up the next morning and it was still raining. We went to work on on Hebrews. And, you know, I had a hard time concentrating on working because my mind was filled with fear. And I was thinking it was going to be days. But, you know, I should have realized something, shouldn't I? That God had put me in that situation to teach me something. But instead, my faith my reaction, my worry, my fear was crippling my ability to work even and translate. And I, my faith had become what? Really small. Well, I did get home, <laughs> to make a long story short. But I began to think when I got home a couple of days later that uh, God was trying to teach me something. He was showing me what it was like to have a, a faith that was small, that became small. and As I looked through the scriptures, I began to realize that it had become small because of fear and I had doubted God when I uh, should have seen that, that he was in control. So to answer one question, what can cause our fear, our faith sometimes to become small, it is fear, isn't it? Fear is one of the causes. Okay, let's look at another cause. Turn with me now to Matthew 6, back to Matthew 6 i was going to turn and look, read it in Manhui, but that would be hard on you. So let me read it in English, okay? Matthew 6, 24 through 30. 6, 24 through 30. Listen to what it says. Jesus was teaching here. And this is a, a long series of teaching, but this is just one point I'm going t- to pull out this morning. He said, no man can serve two masters. Listen to the, there's a thing in here, okay? There, there's one thing that, that's said three times. Okay, three times the same. He says, no man can serve two masters for either He will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, they do not reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you you of little faith. Okay. What was mentioned three times? Worry, wasn't it? Interesting. There's a lot of truth here in this passage. And again, it'd, be, it'd take us a long time to go through some of the points in here. But I just wanted to mention that little one about the little faith. With the cause being worry, which is mentioned three times here. You know, worry. Being anxious. That is our natural tendency. Isn't it? We all worry about something sometimes, don't we? There are, it's, it's a normal thing that we do in life. And that's why the Apostle Paul, I believe, wrote very clearly near the end of his letter in Philippians and told them in chapter 4, verse 6, where he said, Be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about anything, he said. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. You see, it's so easy to choose to worry, to be anxious. It's so worry, easy to fret about anything, too, especially when taxes are due, okay? Or when the bills seem to be more than our paycheck will cover. It's easiest for us to worry about our kids and how they're doing in school or, or how they're just doing, or, or about our job, isn't it? Or, or about our health, or about anything. And that's why Paul, I think, told us to choose to be thankful instead of worry when we pray. When we ask the Lord to not be anxious, but to pray and be thankful. We need to recognize that worry is caused by doubt, isn't it? It's a lack of faith in the one who said he'd meet our needs. And So when we get our eyes off the provider, when we get our eyes off the Lord and we start to doubt and to worry, we thus become people of little faith, don't we? So that's another cause, worry. Now, there's another passage as well. Turn with me to Matthew 17 now. Matthew 17, verses 14 through 20. In the context of this, which is important, Jesus had just been transfigured on the mountain in front of uh, three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. Now, I ask myself, why didn't all the disciples go up on the mountain and see this fantastic vision of Jesus being changed into his heavenly uh, robes or whatever it was that he was transfigured. We just know he was light. But why didn't all the disciples get to see that? Why was it just Peter, James, and John? And the reason, I think, is because they needed to learn something down there on the bottom of the mountain. Jesus had left those disciples at the bottom of the hill. and Then while they were coming down the mountain after the transfiguration, A crowd had gathered, a huge crowd at the bottom with the other of these other disciples. So listen now to the narrative. Verse 17, excuse me, uh, from verse 14, where Jesus and the others draw near to the crowd. It says, when they came up, verse 14, when they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill. For often he falls into the fire and he falls into the water. Now, just a second, Let me stop there. Um, just, just a side note here, because uh, I went and looked at the harmony of the Gospels to see what what, ha- what what was going on here, just a little bit. And Mark and Luke speak of the boy being controlled by an evil spirit. They say nothing about a lunatic. Uh, only, only, and they say he had seizures. But only Matthew do we get this other perspective of the father thinking his son was. Uh, actually, the word was crazy, or the Greek actually suggests the idea of being moonstruck. That's what the word meant. I thought about that. I thought, well, what is there some inconsistency here in the word of God? Where Mark and Luke don't mention what the Father says, but they it does mention the Father saying something, but not this. But what it is, I believe, is that these are eyewitnesses, and eyewitnesses don't always get every detail, do they? In fact, it's... It's more proof that it's true because it isn't consistent. And it is a little bit different in each eyewitness's account. And so that's the way we need to look at it. So anyway, that was just that side note. Some of the other modern versions actually use the word epileptic instead of lunatic. But I believe that that was the actual words that he used. So it needs to be stayed in there. And it was caused by an evil spirit. Back to the text, verse 16. This is what the man says. He says, I brought him to your disciples. He's talking to Jesus. And they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long will I be with you? And I believe Jesus was talking to the disciples and the crowd, not just to this man. He said, bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, the evil spirit. And it says, and the demon came out of him and the boy was cured at once. And then the disciples get this the disciples came to Jesus privately and i think they're worried about their reputation here they came to Jesus privately and they said why couldn't we drive it out and he said to them because of the littleness of your faith for i truly say to you if you had the faith if you have the faith of the size of a mustard seed you will say to this mountain move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you okay So we have another situation of puny faith, don't we? We see how these men's faith had shrunk to smaller than the size of a mustard seed. And I had to to think about this one. What is behind this? What is behind this? Why do the disciples have trouble healing this guy? Now, there are other passages that mention some things. But in this particular one, as I got thinking about it, Why did Jesus rebuke these guys and call them an unbelieving and perverse generation? Weren't they they trying to do God's work? Weren't they trying to heal this child? Wasn't this God's work? Then I realized, aha, that's the key. That's the key, at least in my thinking it is. It seems that the disciples had been trying to do God's work in their own abilities, using their own strength, thinking that they could do it. They were focusing on themselves and their own abilities. And it it had become, I think, about self rather than about God. They were trusting not in God or believing that he could help them, but only in seeing their own abilities and seeing themselves as great. And I think that was the lesson that God wanted for them down there instead of being up on the mountain. You see, when when we think about it's all about ourselves, that we're important, this is another cause for doubt and wrong focus and not seeing God. And when we make the focus about ourselves and leave God out, We think we can do something with our own train, possibly our own abilities. We become people of little faith. And and I know I've fallen into this thinking at times, translating the word of God. That's that's a big job. It's an important job. But when I try to do it in myself, thinking that I have all the abilities, you know what it is? It's idolatry. It's self-worship. It's so easy to slip into the self-mode and try to glorify ourselves. And it's our natural tendency. And and I think that, again, back to Philippians, because I have been studying that as well. Paul said in Philippians 2.3, he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And he told us this because that is our natural tendency. We do elevate self. We do get conceited. We do like to do things for our own glory. And when we do, though, we've turned from faith to God, to faith in self. And like I said, that's idolatry. No wonder Jesus called these men unbelieving and perverted. When we worship self and fail to give God the glory, we become just like those men and we become people of little faith. So we got three now, okay? There's three things here. What is it? One is fear when we become afraid of us in a situation to has seen God as responsible for putting us there for our own good. We become people of little faith. And second is worry when we... Uh, begin to worry about what, our possessions or our, our lot in life or our money or our whatever it is, we become people of little faith. We worry. Thirdly, there's self-glory. When we start thinking about there's something within us that, that does it, we're trusting our own abilities. Then our faith becomes puny, doesn't it? And so the same thing that Jesus said of these men could be said of us, that we are little had little faith. Now, that's not the end. There's also a good side, okay? So let's look quickly at Matthew 8. This is, we're going to now look at the verses that that Dave read. I'm going to go ahead and read them again, okay? Because Jesus also said to some people they had great faith. Matthew 8, 5 through 13. Again, I'll read it. Jesus, when he entered into Capernaum, a a centurion came up to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home. And fearfully tormented. And so Jesus said. Okay I'll come. I'll come and heal him. He says there in verse 7. But in verse 8. The centurion said. Lord I am not worthy. I am not worthy. For you to come under my roof. But just say the word. Just say the word. And my servant will be healed. For I am also a man under authority. With soldiers under me. And I say to this one. Go and he goes into another. Come and he comes into my slave. Do this and he does it. So that was the centurion's answer. And Jesus said, he says, when he heard this, he marveled and he said to those who were following him, truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from the east and from the west, recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus turns to the centurion, doesn't he? And he says, go, and it will be done to you done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. It wasn't even later. It was right then and there, which is incredible to me. So we see that this man had great faith, didn't he? It's interesting. It's an example of someone who believed, a compliment really, for a man who wasn't even a Jew. But it's a sad commentary on the Jewish nation, wasn't it? That there wasn't anybody with faith like that. No Israelites living in that area. So what made his faith great? Well, I, as I got thinking about faith, what's the definition of faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, isn't it? And he didn't have to see Jesus do something, did he? He didn't have to see Jesus wave his hand over the man or, or touch him. He didn't even have to. He didn't even want Jesus to go there, did he? Just say the word, he said. Wow. So where was his focus? It was on Jesus, wasn't it? It wasn't on himself. He wasn't like the disciples at the bottom of the mountain that were looking for glory. He was humble, so there was humility there. He said, Lord, he says, I'm not worthy for you even to come under my roof, he said. You know how easily he could have thought, I am a man of great authority. I'm a, I'm a centurion, a Roman soldier, an important captain in the Roman army. I'm someone with, worthy of great respect. But no, he recognized Jesus as the one of great authority, didn't he? He believed Jesus, and so he had great faith. Okay, there's another example. Matthew 15, turn again. This will be our last one here. Matthew 15, 21 through 28. uh, Excuse me, I have the wrong, I have verses 21 through 28, but I believe, and I don't have the reference otherwise. Just a second here. Let me just read the passage, okay? I'll have to look at this later and see why I wrote it wrong. But uh, it says, verse 15. Verse 15. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And that's, according to context, that's out of Israel. He went into a foreign country, basically. And I believe he went away to get some rest. Verse 22, it says, okay, here we go. Here's, it was 21. Excuse me, 15, 21, and 22. Verse 22, it says, A Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Verse 23, what did Jesus do? Nothing. He, he said, No, he did not answer a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And I believe that was for her ears and for theirs as well. It says, but she came, verse 25, and began to bow down before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, yes, Lord. In other words, you're right. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. And Jesus said to her, Oh, woman, your faith is great. So here it is again. Your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Again, the timing of it. So we have another example here of, of someone where Jesus said that they had great faith. And again, it's similar to the Roman centurion, isn't it? She wasn't an Israelite. She was a Canaanite, which puts to me is shameful for the Israelites at that time. But that's 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 the story, that's the narrative, and, and I find it interesting too, that at first Jesus acted like he wasn't going to heal her, as we see there from verse twenty-three. He didn't answer at first, and uh, some commentators say that maybe this was uh, uh, because Jesus was testing her faith. Well, that, that that's possible. This could be part of it, or, or maybe it was a, a lesson for the disciples to show them that Jesus wasn't just sent to the Jews, but he was also sent to the Gentiles. Now, that's, that's okay. It's possible that there too. And I, I even read one commentary that said that this may have been a lesson for the disciples in perseverance in prayer. Now, that's, that's stretching a little far, I think. But what I do see here is a lesson for us in humility and faith, isn't it? We see it there in verse 25 that this woman bowed down to Jesus in humility. She didn't demand. She bowed down to him in humility and admitted her need of him by saying, Lord, help me. And then again in 27, her answer to Jesus also shows her humility. She saw herself as an unworthy Gentile, not even a Jew, who really didn't deserve help. And then we see her faith. In verse 27, we see that she believed Jesus to be merciful and loving in spite of her position as a Gentile. She believed that he could allow her to share in some of the blessings that was only for the Jews at the time. And Because of that humility, because of her admitting the fact that she was unworthy, and her ability to believe in him in spite of that, he said she was a woman of great faith, didn't he? So, to wrap it up in conclusion, I was just thinking about these things, you know, How can we apply what we've read here? Now, I've already made some application as, you, as you've heard, but I just want to ask you this. Are we going to be paralyzed by fear or by worry or by focusing on ourselves and of our own abilities and become or stay people, become people of little faith? Or can we humbly come before God and recognize that He alone is worthy of our worship? And not ourselves. Can we see him as having tailored. Every situation. Every single one. For us. To teach us something. But also to bring glory to himself. He's the one that needs the glory. Not us. Can we look to him in faith. And believe that he will provide. Exactly what we need. In every situation. Because he is always. Always. Always in control. And therefore we can become people of great faith. Can't we? That's the choice isn't it? We have. It's our choice.